You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Tuesday, June 9th, 2015, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. And we have a special guest road this week, Asia Moon. Asia, welcome back to the Skeptic's Guide. Hi, and thanks. This is your second time on the show as a guest rogue. Uh, it is, yes. So, Asia, what have you been up to? I hear you're traveling around the globe. Oh, goodness. I've been up to a lot, actually. Um, I've been to Australia twice, and on my second adventure, I went and did a presentation with uh, Mardi Gras in Nimbin. Um, I got to see uh, Dr. Waddock again, who also presented at the Sydney Skeptics Convention that I went to in December. Asia, have you ever seen the play Book of Mormon? No, I haven't. Uh, I saw it last week. Bob, you saw it, right? Oh, lucky. Yeah, about a year and a half ago. Oh, I didn't it know was... you saw it, Bob. So, yes. all right. So this is really something I should see, huh? Yeah, it was, it was oh my God, incredible. Oh my God. Yeah, it was. Jay, Jay, it's a musical. Do I like musicals? It doesn't matter. That <laughs> you, good. your favorite movie is Grease. <laughs> Do I like what you're talking about? But yeah, so this is, um, <laughs> Matt and Trey Matt's, Parker. Yeah, Matt and Trey. Matt Stone and Trey Parker. Right. From yeah. the South Park guys. And you could see the South Park humor throughout. Oh, yeah. Oh, and, gosh, I hope but so. I, I was surprised at how awesome the music was. Right. It was really good. I was like, I, you know, I was expecting it to be funny. I didn't really expect the music to be so, so uh, awesome. I don't know how much of a hand they have directly in their music productions, but like you said, Steve, their music is very good. In the movie, in the South Park movie, I thought the music was very good. In oh. fact, they were nominated for an Academy Award. Yeah, yeah I think they write the Canada. Music. Yeah, they, I think they actually do write all the music. That's awesome. They are so talented. Oh my I God. I haven't watched South good Park skeptics. in years. Oh my goodness. I think I was like 20 the last time I watched it. It's as irreverent as ever. It's still I'm good. Sure you got it. it. Yeah. The writing is brilliant. They managed to make fun of, uh, you know, all religions, not just the Mormons, but, um, obviously, good. especially the Mormons. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's the way they do it, of course, is just priceless. It's worth seeing. If you have an opportunity to see it, I, I definitely would recommend it. Uh, Tony Award winning musical, by the yeah. way. Yeah. 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 And it was funny because, you know, you're sitting in an audience in New York City and, I suspect that not everyone in that audience was like a skeptical atheist. You know what I mean? Uh, and some parts of the play were just completely irreverent. But, you know, I just wonder how the average audience member was reacting to, uh, Bob, remember the song? <laughs> that was, you think, not <laughs> a Kuna Matata, more... yeah. not a Kuna Matata, but their version <laughs> of that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Man. oh no. <laughs> I can only imagine. Keep it, keep in mind though, I would not necessarily go with young kids to the, to this. Yeah. To the right. show. Oh, Definitely uh-huh. you want to think twice about that. That sounds awesome. All right. Well, we're going to dive right in, Bob. Yes. Forgotten superhero of science for this week. Who is it? This week, the forgotten superhero of science is Chen Sheng Wu. She was a Chinese American experimental physicist who made significant contributions to the standard model of physics and showed that the conservation of parity does not always hold. What? Ever hear, ever hear of her? What? <laughs> Wu got her uh, doctorate degree in physics in 1940, and she worked on the Manhattan Project uh, while she was at Columbia University. But her greatest contribution came from conducting what is now called the Wu Experiment. How awesome is that to have an experiment named after you? Two of her co- uh, co-workers came to her, uh, they had an idea, a very good idea, uh, to prove 
that uh, the quantum mechanical conception of parity conservation does not always hold, uh, which was a very radical idea at that time. So this means that the part particles that are essentially mirror images of other particles do not always behave the same way. Uh, but uh, in the thinking of the time, the the uh, the parity of of particles should should not be relevant to, to what to how they interact. Uh, so this is a basic tenet of physics, and it was proved uh, that con- that parity conservation held up for electromagnetism and strong force interactions. So it was assumed that it would also hold under the weak force interactions, and the the physics community was shocked, so shocked when her experiment showed that that was not the case. So shocked uh, they were with the discovery that they received a Nobel Prize for physics, except, and you could probably see this coming, she did not receive one herself, even though her experiment, uh, it was her experiment that elegantly proved it and made the breakthrough. Although, I mean, okay, it, they came to her with the idea, but I mean, she was instrumental and critical to that entire process. I think she should have been, she could have, you could easily argue that she could, she should have got that as well. But, uh, she didn't really need it. This, this woman was so accomplished, so many firsts. Uh, she was the first woman president of the American Physical Society, the first woman to receive an honorary doctorate from Princeton, uh, the first female recipient of the National Academy of Sciences Comstock Prize, and she was the first living scientist to have an asteroid named after her. So that's really cool. And she won the Wolf Prize in physics. She was the, the first one, right? Yes, I think that was on the list too. I didn't, I didn't include that one. There was just okay. so many. I couldn't even inc- include them all. But still, her, her Wu experiment though, um, and what came out of that was an important contribution to particle physics and the development of the standard model of physics. So remember Chen Chung Wu. Mention her to your friends, perhaps when discussing weak interaction W bosons as they relate to particle helicity. Oh, I wish I knew about this last week because I was just talking about that. <laughs> yeah, that and Housewives of New Jersey. <laughs> I like how one of her nicknames is the Chinese Madame Curie. Right? Yes, if you're if a female ah. scientist, you have to be compared to Madame Curie. Oh right? well, of course. The only right. the only Name female, two scientist. female scientists. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. So, has anyone here ever had anything implanted in their brain? No. Yes. Other than a bad idea, no. <laughs> False <laughs> memories. Yes. Stole that as far from as you know. Why? Never been abducted by aliens. Probed. Are you sure. Hey, whoa, whoa, Steve. Scan, scan. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. Well, that's getting a little vague there. All right. So a team of researchers from Harvard, Harvard. developed a uh, an injectable network of electrodes. It's very tiny and you could curl up, you know, into essentially the, you know, a, a small needle and then you could inject it through like the skull of a rat. They're experimenting on rats. And then it unfurls and lays across the surface of the brain and sort of works its way down into the little you know, squiggles of the brain. Wow. It's a flexible mesh network. Uh, so this is a you know technology that they're developing to try to get higher resolution uh, and more accurate electrical connections to the brain. The living brain. Yeah, well, a living brain, yeah. So that that's yeah, the dead brains aren't very interesting, but we can get high resolution out of them. <laughs> yeah, you, <laughs> you can get microscopic resolution. Out of them. But so if you want to see neurons in action, though, you know, you need to connect to them electrically. We can. What Bob's really talking about is like you can have neurons in a petri dish, and we could, you know, 
patch clamp, clamp them down to, you know, very small scales. But we want to see neurons at work in an actual full brain. We want to see how they're working together, the, their pattern of firing and how that relates to functionality. Um, so this is an important tool for trying to figure out the connectome, right? Mapping the brain. Evan, how many neurons are in the adult human brain? Uh, lots. That's correct. <laughs> can you be more specific? Uh, yes, yes, a shitload. Yes. <laughs> Does anyone That's know? That's a this great is, one. I like that. This is well, like, I'm just, like 100 million? 87 billion. A hundred billion was thrown around for a long oh. time, but then oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh god, yeah. I was off by a huge amount. Eighty-seven billion, and wow, each neuron makes about ten thousand connections. So we're getting wow. up into the order of quadrillion, a quadrillion of a quadrillion connections. Thank you. Bob. Is that all? I knew that one. A quadrillion. That's that, a lot of connections. What that is them. just what we'd like to be able to do is, mind. is to record a lot of sing- the, a lot of single neurons at work in the brain. If you attack, attach electrodes to the scalp, it's so attenuated, you're only getting large clusters of neurons that are firing together. Mm-hmm. Um, you can put electrodes on the surface of the brain, and that that gets better. The problem is the brain, you know, is jelly-like, and it's filled with pulsating blood vessels. So it's hard to keep the electrodes exactly in an intimate relationship with one neuron. You know what I mean? So they needed something that would, that is flexible, that will pulsate and move with the brain. So it, once it sort of gets enmeshed in the brain tissue, it'll, each electrode, if that, if an electrode's connecting to one neuron, it'll stay attached to that neuron. It won't move as the brain pulsates. Well, how, do, how does the electrode actually connect to a neuron though? Well, there's what? little, there's little tiny nanowires coming out of this mesh. And so they will just get close enough to one neuron that it's going to record the electrical oh, okay, activity. Of that okay. Neuron. That is just unbelievable. How deep do they go, Steve? Well, it's still just at the surface of the brain, which is fine because that's, there's a lot of activity there. But it's limiting though. It is ultimately limiting. If yeah. you have, if there's, once this, once this technology is very mature and reliable and, and you could coat, say, you know, a significant portion of the, uh, the outer part of the brain, that'd be great. But still, you're not getting interesting, you know, structures and neurons deep inside the brain, unless you can somehow create those wires that just fill the brain, you know, just go deep, deep. Yeah, I mean, this this technology is not going to get us to where we're recording from the entire brain. Okay. No, and they're talking it's going to be 100 years before it matures properly on all three of the (laughs) technologies. So, yeah, it'll be a while. And then by then, there should be much more intricate technology as well, which could get into deeper levels and make this so much more interesting than what they're proposing in this article. Yes, I agree. Eventually, I think, eventually we'll have a a nanite sitting next to every neuron, and then we're talking super high resolution. Well, but all along the way, all along the way, this is going to be useful and interesting. Yes. Not just when it's fully realized, whatever that means. Because whatever, wherever we are in 50 to 100 years, we'll be talking about like the next 100 years and what that what that means. But in any case, so just this gets us to a higher resolution. Um, again, that the flexibility means that we could record from a group of, uh, of single neurons. I think the first one has 16 electrodes, but they're working on bigger ones that will have many more electrodes. And then this will, this will aid in our ability to, to, you know, move forward in terms, in terms of doing brain mapping using electrical signals. The other thing is, though, that you can use these nanowires to stimulate the electrons, not just record from them. And then it becomes a a therapeutic tool. Uh, We're already implanting wires in the brain in order to 
treat things like epilepsy and Parkinson's disease. So, um, again, I don't know if this would be useful specifically, um, for, for those conditions because it's just surface electrodes, but like for Parkinson's, you have to get, it's deep brain stimulation that we're working on. So it's got to get a wire deep, deep down in there. Uh, epilepsy depends on where the seizures are. So it could be useful. Uh, but in any case, it gives us the ability to, to stimulate the brain as well as uh, record from it. So I think there are three types of technology that this type of technique will help us develop. One is mapping the brain. Two is brain machine interface. Right, so these are people oh, controlling yeah. the robotic arms, uh, and that the ability to control like a computer or a robot or a robot or an arm or whatever a prosthetic depends on the number of and the resolution of the electrodes that are interfacing with the brain. So you could put a cap on and have some control of the arm, but it's not very precise. If you put electrodes on the scalp, you get better control, but then you have electrodes on on your brain, and there's um, that can irritate the brain. So the other thing about this uh, mesh is that it's not very irritating. They're hoping it could survive for a long period of time on the brain. And because you can get a lot of electrodes in a small space with single neurons, you get a very much higher resolution. So this could lead to much better uh, brain-machine interfaces. And then, of course, the, the third technology is is computer modeling the brain, leading to perhaps eventually artificial intelligence or AI. So I think this is one step. You know, I think these kind of advances are made of a thousand baby steps, right? The, the press likes breakthroughs, but in reality, most scientific advances are some degree of baby steps. I'm fine with baby steps. I'm good yeah, with them. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, like but every, a, you know, every little advancement is, one, is, a, is a step closer. I mean, it's not just, you know, this advancement here. It's that you know, hundreds of advancements or thousands of them are happening at the same time, you know, yeah. and, and new new fields of science are being developed. I mean, this is awesome. I'm I'm really excited to hear they're on the way to do this. Yeah, this is significant enough to talk about, I think. You know, it's, well, it takes us one step closer to all of those things. And it is interesting to think about where we're going to be in 50 or 100 years. I mean, there there is no theoretical limit to the degree to which we can mesh machine and brain. And that leads to all of these things, you know. Uh, this does lead ultimately to the matrix, you know, as one sort of mature tech that flows from this. But, you know, even before that level, uh, even just neuroprosthetics, you know, which I think is probably going to be one of the earlier applicate, like really hard applications, just, you know, an amputee being able to actually control a robotic hand is huge. Absolutely. You know, mm -hmm. like, oh, that changes your life. I was born without the ability to walk, and getting my legs was great. I went 12 years without sorry? walking. The, uh, I what? went 12 oh, years without really? walking. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I was born with my legs uh, twisted. They were literally pointing backwards. And it took them 12 years to do several procedures to eventually get my legs to face forward. And at the end of it, I mean, holy crap, I could walk. It was so amazing. Oh, my God. And run around and have a, a real life. It was, it was pretty good. And I'm, I'm glad I didn't have to go through anything like prosthetics and they were able to fix it. But that ability so you, to, to do something that you weren't before is definitely life changing. It's. Uh, so let me ask you, Asia. So you were born that way. And then, so you were 12 years old before you were walking. Uh, yeah, I had to have a little bit of assistance when I got out of the wheelchair. I had a, a body crutch for a bit just until I started regaining proper muscle control and, and I was rehabilitated properly because, you know, when you spend 12 months not moving your legs or muscles kind of 
stop functioning, they fall apart, and they uh-huh. kind of become flabby, you know, dysfunctional legs. So you had to go yeah. through um, rehabilitation and get my muscles going. But eventually, yeah, now I kind of run around and do my thing, and it's it's all good. Did you oh, wow. have any walking at all before then? With uh, assistance, yeah. Were you, with assistance, you would walk with – because actually the thing that amazes me is not that you got your legs working because that's just muscles, but it's that you got brain, your, brain your anti-gravity and the like the cerebellum and all that stuff because if you, know, if you don't develop that at a young age, you may never develop it. But you must have yeah. been doing enough anti-gravity work that it was able to at least – you know, develop that part of Absolutely. your brain. And it wasn't all muscles because the bones were literally twisted. So eventually they had the twist kind of up in my femurs. And then they kind of went in and they took all the flesh off the bone from the kneecap to the hip, cut the bone in half and let them untwist. And then they plated them and put six screws uh, in the plate into the bone and then kind of butterflied and sewed it back up and left me paralyzed for 12 months. And then I was on my way to getting better. Oh, cool. Yeah, they did it on both sides. It was pretty cool. Yeah, I I thought it was interesting. Most people would probably be like, ooh, that's not fun. But being young and kind of into science, I enjoyed the process. And the doctors were super cool and showed me lots of fun stuff. So I, I had a good time getting better. All right. So, Asia, let me ask you a question. If at that age, <laughs> they said, oh, you have one of three choices. We could do the surgery and fix your legs. Or we can grow you new biological legs from your own tissue and attach those. Or I would take the new legs. Or we could give you bionic legs. That would function better and would, but would be entirely mechanical and, and, but they would be interfaced with your nervous system. So you would control them like your own legs. What would you choose? I would choose the new legs to grow a new pair. That kind of leads us to our next news item. Jay. I thought it might. Of course. Yeah. It will. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a story about a girl who did not choose wisely which, which <laughs> legs to pick. <laughs> <laughs> um, she should clearly have picked the robot legs because they can allow her to jump really high, like, like fuck two miles or something. And you make that cool noise when you do it, like, wow. no, 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 Yeah. Right. Okay. Oh, yeah. Six million dollar man. There are a, a 1.5 million amputees in the United States and worldwide the numbers are, you know, significantly higher than that. Oh, yeah. And that's a kind of an odd statistic, isn't it? But that means, you know, there's a lot of people out there that for one reason or another lost a limb, right? Steve, tell me what, you know, if, uh, as a medical doctor, like, you know, why would this happen? Why are so many people losing limbs or are they, you know, people born without them? What's the deal? It's everything. I mean, obviously the war has cost a lot of limbs. You know, you have stuff blowing up on the ground. It takes, tends to take out people's legs. Um, other injuries, uh, infection, uh, old, you know, older people, uh, who have had diabetes for a long time, for example, could get, uh, you know, infections or, Necrotic or, tissue. Yeah, uh, or vascular insufficiency of the re- requiring amputation of a limb. Uh, so some of it's traumatic, some of it is f- from various diseases. And then, you know, sometimes people are built with, uh, sometimes people are born with incompletely formed limbs. And some of it is from people learning how to use lightsabers and they just wing, yep. you know. The lightsaber academy is just an endless supply the of the flow amputees. of the <laughs> <laughs> Um <laughs> But at least, at least they cauterize. So, yeah, you don't bleed out. You know, you just lie down and scream. Very, very clean, yeah. So a lot of people very. would definitely benefit from advanced technology that can solve this, you know, horrible and largely amazingly problematic medical problem. So the status of replacement limbs is that there there are several options. You have, you know, artificial limbs that look real. But they either have little or no real utility, right? So you've seen people that have a hand, an arm and hand that look like 
they're real. You know, when you scan your eye across the room, you wouldn't notice, but they can't really do anything with it. It's just there to make the person look whole. And then they have, um, you know, we have bionic limb replacements, but these are extraordinarily expensive and they don't really, they don't look real. You know, I've seen tons of them. Uh, I just posted one up on our Facebook page a few days ago that, that was really cool. There's a company that is making a, um, artificial hands that are, you know, pretty, pretty advanced. Um, uh, but yeah, still, that was cool, Jay. You know, it doesn't look real. It doesn't move like a real hand. It's still, you know, it's not moving with the, the fluid nature of a real hand yet. You know, it's, it's, Great, but we're not there yet. Um, and we also have had people that have received actual hand transplants. But unfortunately, you know, this, you know, it just, it's pretty hard to deal with. You know, you get a, you get a foreign body attached to yours and there's a psychological aspect of it that a lot of people have a problem with. And then there's the amino, immunosuppressant drugs that are really hard. You know, they're hard to take. They, they don't, you don't feel well when you're on these drugs. And they, they overall lower your, you know, lower your ability to, to deal with foreign bodies. So it's just a hard thing to do. So, you know, with those being the options, uh, yes, we need some new technology. We need something to, um, to help this effort out. So Ma- Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston has actually grown what they're calling a biolimb. And this is an actual limb grown from the cells of a rat. So in this case, they, they took the uh the arm or leg if you will of a rat and this this is a you know this is a replacement limb this is a, a limb that would be made up of the recipient's own cells and this would means it wouldn't need any of the drugs that would help you um keep the limb and and, and what they're reporting and they're saying that you know if the, if this if these efforts go well you know the limb would feel and look and act natural uh Harold Ott of like I said, Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, who grew the limb, said, this is the first attempt to make a biolimb, and I'm not aware of any other technology able to generate a composite tissue of this complexity. So here's what they did. They call this technique D-cell resell, and this is the same technique that's used to make internal organs. You know, you guys have heard like the kidneys and hearts, lungs in the lab, um, mm-hmm. esophagus, I think they made as well. Yeah, really, really awesome work. Yeah. Trachea. Is, yeah, it trachea is. rather. Yeah, very, very awesome. Uh, now, the way this technique works is that they take the dead donor organ, right? So let's just use uh, a heart as an example. Now, this is made up of a lot of inert protein collagen. When I say made up of, the, the structure of it is actually made up of collagen. And what they do is they, they strip away all of the cells, the actual soft, soft tissue cells of the donor, and they leave behind this inner structure of the organ. It's like a lattice work or... A you know, framework. It's a framework or scaffolding. Now that now, yeah. the, then what they do is they'll they'll take specific types of cells that that are either or the existing cell that they want to grow there or a cell that turns into the appropriate cell. Uh, Jay, I think it's quickly important to 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 mention that this scaffolding that's left uh, will not give will not have an immune reaction in any recipient. Right? It's yeah. It's not. It's not right. picked up by by. The recipient's body as a foreign body because right. the, that, that's that, key. It's not considered. Well, I mean, I mean, the framework, the the framework that's donated from say another person. So you could take someone else's heart and reduce it to the framework, and then you could see the 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 cells from the recipient onto it, and then the body, the recipient would not reject it. Well, obviously because of its own cells, but because the framework itself won't be rejected because that's kind of immune, uh, you know, agnostic. 
It's like inert. Or, it's inert. Right. So, yeah, since the donor's tissue is no longer really present, it, you know, the, there's nothing for the new body to pick up as a foreign object. So Bob's correct. So of course, guys, growing a limb, you know, this is much more complicated than we're talking about than, than an organ, even a complicated organ like the heart. Um, it, because it requires a lot of different kinds of cells. Now, Ott, the, uh, the guy who developed this had to hook the limb up to an artificial circulatory system that supplied electrical stimulation and oxygen and nutrients. He then introduced cells called myoblasts and these cells grow into muscle tissue. So they put these myoblasts in the places in the lattice work where muscles should grow. And, and guys, so keep in mind, they're feeding it nutrition. It's in a bioreactor. And after a few weeks, muscles and blood vessels had regrown. And, and you saw, look at the picture, you know, get, take the, op- the opportunity to go online and take a look at the pictures of this, you know, and then they skin grafted it and they had a limb. Now, of course, you know, I'm not, you know, let's get real here though. We have to poke some holes into this. There are some fatal flaws in it where it is right now. Um, they were able to make the, the limb flex, right? So they were able to make the claw open and close by stimulating the muscles, meaning that the muscles were connected properly to the, you know, the extremities and, and things seem to be functioning well. And they also attach this limb to the blood flow of a, rat, of a rat and it works successfully. But, um, there's a lot, a lot left, right? There's a long way to go. The limbs are created. Some people are saying that's never really going to be able to solve some of the more difficult challenges. And they were saying that circulation and, and nervous system growth are incredibly difficult and they haven't licked these problems yet, not even close. So, you know, when you have other experts in the field saying, hey, this is great, valuable research, please do it, but, you know, let's get real. You're, you're prob- yeah, we're decades, decades away from this working if it ever does. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah this is a really complicated way to go. You know, you take a limb and you completely remove all the cells and you try to put them all back, you know, from the host cells. So it's not just, they also need to get the bone in there too. They need to get the, the, you know, that's, they need, they need bone, they need vessels. And then you want the host's nerves to grow its way into the limb, you know, to control it, which is possible, but, you know, it's hard to, to make that happen appropriately. It's easier when you're, when you have like just a hand. So it doesn't have to go very far. It's hard. The farther the nerves have to go, the harder that is. And then they're never going to go exactly where you want them to. But that's not a fatal problem because you may have to actually retrain your brain to control the limb. Yeah. That that's called an abnormal reinnervation syndrome, where the nerves don't go where they're supposed to go, and it takes time. You have to engage your brain's plasticity. The brain has to essentially learn how to map to the new pattern of nerves. So that would have to happen. It seems like a really hard way to do it. I wonder if this approach, even if this approach, at best, I think it would take decades before we're going to have human applications for a limb. But they said that they would be doing human testing in ten years. But whenever yeah. I hear five years or ten years, I hear testing fifty years. Triple, yeah, yeah. T- testing yeah. in ten years that means decades. Well, they did. So, Steve, they did. Um, they did already start testing on a primate limb. Yeah, I saw that. So, what method would you think would be better, Steve? I don't know if this is possible but i uh we don't have the technology to do this now but so there's um several you know lines of research you just wonder which one's going to hit first right. i th- my my sense is that we're a lot closer regrowing no i, I was going to say but i think we're closest on bionic limbs i think you, in 10 or 20 years you're much more likely to have a bionic limb than a artificial a regrown limb 
I think that growing a limb entirely rather than populating a scaffold, you know what I mean? Like growing like a lizard it, tail. Yeah, like re regenerating the limb really is what we're talking. Yeah, about. Yeah, that seems more plausible than doing it. Yeah, doesn't it? To, to regenerating a limb may may hit may work earlier than manufacturing, you know, a, a scaffold like this. But we'll see. But we don't know how that. Obviously, that can happen. Animals can regrow limbs. Uh, it's just a matter of having the stem cells and the programming. And if we just need to completely figure out how to how to do that, but you know, it may be a matter of just you know flipping a few genes here and there, right? It, doesn't it seem almost like too easy at that point? Right? Once we really understand, yeah, you know what genes control these types of things, I would worry about cancer. You know, when you start like yeah. t- telling cells, yeah, start growing like crazy. You know, like watch out. Oh yeah, oh, that's sure. that's the big risk. Yeah, that's, yeah, yep, that's the big mess, risk. Yeah. That's the trick. I mean, that's the limiting fact. That is one of the big limiting factors with stem cell technology. You know, we could just get stem cells to grow out of control, but yeah, just getting yeah. them to do what we want them to do without causing cancer. That's tricky. Yeah. Hey, Jay, Jay, you try to grow a new hand and it just grows a big tumor shaped hand. <laughs> I know, terrible, <laughs> right? <laughs> Some monsterism. Well, yeah. but, but overall though, you know, look, it's these types of efforts that, that researchers and scientists make. That lead to other discoveries, and oh yeah, you know, this is one hell of a feat, guys. I mean, you know, look at well, that. it was a four four limb, but yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, take a look at the pictures and and you know, marvel at the fact that people are doing stuff like this. Yeah, marvel at the fact that in fifty years this is going to be awesome. But yeah, it, it is though the advance. It, it is fascinating to watch the advances in these early stages as they're being made. But we got to be realistic about how long it's going to take. All right, all right, we're going to turn to a little bit of pseudoscience, take a break from hard science for a moment. Evan, yeah. Yeah. you're going to tell us about an MP in Great Britain, David Tredinick. We've mentioned him before on the show, I believe. In case you don't know, in the merry old land of England, there exists the parliamentary system of government, and there are individuals who serve in parliament, and they are called MPs, which stands for Member of Parliament. David Trednick. So he believes in some very interesting and highly unscientific ideas. For example, uh, astrology uh, is real. <laughs> well, that's, that's a big one. Um, the physical effects of a full moon can cause uh, certain things such as internal bleeding. How exactly he came to that conclusion, I don't know. Oh, and he's a very strong proponent of homeopathy. That is to say, he believes that water has memory vibrational energies, and can cure all sorts of ailments, as we know. He is also, as a member of Parliament, he's also on the, well, several committees, among them the Health Committee and the Science and Technology Committee. Oh, and it gets worse. (laughs) Now he's been nominated as the Chairman of the Health Committee. Oh, boy. Yeah, he's challenging. What a disaster. uh, uh, he's challenging existing chairwoman Dr. Sarah Wollaston for this role, and the nominations close uh, on June 10th. The vote is going to be held on June 17th. Uh, in case you don't know, I looked it up online. The Health Committee, as per their website, is appointed by the House of Commons to examine the policy, administration, and expenditure of the Department of Health and its associated bodies. I mean, yeah, this is definitely the time for... You know, citizens of the UK to, to write to whomever they need to write to, to, to protest this. I mean, you can't have a, a pseudoscientist essentially in charge of the health committee. I mean, we have a, the same kind of problems over here, you know, with, 
global warming deniers, for example, being in charge of the science committee. But, uh, why does that happen? Why, why does it seem like that the exact worst person, you know, gets in, gets to positions of power and decision making? Cause they're like trying they're really. Outlier cranks, you know, I guess, cause they're motivated, but. Right. They're uh, trying really, really hard. Yeah. Um, it's unfortunate, but, yeah, but it, it's, it's the political version of that saying that in order for evil to triumph, all that is necessary is for good people to do nothing. And in this situation, you know, for pseudoscience to succeed, all that's necessary is for the average person to just not care enough about it, to, to do anything about it. This is the shruggy problem, right? The people who aren't, don't have an acute awareness of how much harm a, a strategically placed pseudoscientist could do. Like we had, you know, Harkin and Hatch in our country, two senators who did, did no end of mischief, you know, in terms of, uh, the like dietary supplement health and education act and, uh, the national center for complementary alternative medicine. I mean, completely, uh, horrible legislation just because of two. Well, what, in my opinion, one true believer and one shill for his constituency, but still just a couple of individuals. The, you know, homeopathy was written into the FDA because of Royal Copeland, one senator who was a homeopath. That's it. Homeopathy gets grandfathered in. But speaking of which, I do want to give a quick update on that just to make sure everyone's aware. So recently, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, decided they were going to review their regulation of homeopathy. Now, they can't change the laws. Only Congress can do that. But essentially, the FDA has the power to regulate homeopathic remedies. It just chooses not to. Or it chose not to like 50 years ago because it was such a tiny slice of the market. It wasn't worth their resources. So they just, and it was mostly prescribed by homeopaths. But now there's a multi-billion dollar over-the-counter homeopathic industry. And the FDA is like, hmm, maybe we should regulate this like yeah, we are thank like hey. we are tasked to do by the law so they good for them for <laughs> you know at least finally waking up to this and and yeah rip ram winkle yeah, there, they're, but, oh well at least they will finally woke they're up. taking uh, public testimony so you can go to the FDA website and you could send them your recommendations for how you would like them to to regulate homeopathy it doesn't have to be detailed the Homeopaths and true believers and and cranks are overflowing the site, saying how wonderful it is and it cured their everything. And you know, so we definitely need scientists and skeptics to be in there to say that you know, please, the FDA do your job and do not allow people to be, you know, bamboozled by this utter nonsense. Also, this can't be a coincidence. The Federal Trade Commission, so that they also they regulate the advertising of medicine. Right of of lots of things, including medicine. They are having a workshop in September and public testimony on how they should be regulating homeopathic advertising. Ooh. So this is yet another opportunity to tell a government agency that, yes, homeopathy is complete and utter, unmitigated nonsense. It has no place in a modern society. And if you were doing your job, you would do everything you possibly could to protect the public from this scam. Uh, so, yeah, so let's uh, go to the FTC site, go to the FDA site, let your voice be heard. Let's you know try to have the voice of reason be as well represented as possible. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses. 
Great courses, guys. Big History, The Big Bang, Life on Earth, and the Rise of Humanity. This is by Professor David Christian. This is an epic course. allows you to explore human history in the context of time and space, spanning over, oh, only 13 billion years. That's awesome. I love series like this. They really put the universe in perspective for you. And that's exactly what this course does. It's from the start of the Big Bang and forward. I mean, how much better can it get than that? So, guys, we definitely would love to have you check out the great courses for yourself. Don't just trust us. Check it out when you have the time. They have audio and video lectures from top professors in over 500 topics. 500. Wow. Including science, history, math, art, and music. Oh, and I hear we're having a special limited time offer. Order from eight of the Great Courses best-selling series, including Big History, up to 80% off the original price. But 80% savings is only available for a limited time. You have to act now. So go to thegreatcourses.com slash skeptics. That's thegreatcourses.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. All right, Bob, we're now back to technology. You're going to tell us about DARPA's latest challenge. This was DARPA's robotic challenge. Whoa! Uh, DRC, and it's not, it's not just, it's not, I didn't really know this, I didn't really pick up on this, but it's not just the latest challenge, it's the culmination of, uh, of the, all the challenges that they've had the past few years. And it finally ended this, this, uh, past, uh, early June. And, uh, the winner, they crowned the, the winner of the, of the competition, and it was South Korea's Hubo. Robot, uh, that came out on top, followed by second and third place, which was, uh, from the United States. This was the Running Man computer, um, sorry, the Running Man robot and the Chimp robot. Now, what, I don't what know. Was the, what was the actual feat that they did, Bob? And what, what, what do these robots look like? Well, it was, they, they were mostly, mostly humanoid, some not very humanoid, but it was, it was eight tasks and I've got a, I've got a list. But what I didn't really know about this is how much this challenge was pretty much created because of Fukushima in April 2011. I did not know that this was a direct result. Now, if you remember, April 2011, uh, Japan suffered a, a, a huge earthquake and tsunami, and it, it damaged the Fukushima nuclear reactor, and three of its six reactors melted down. Nasty stuff. It was actually the only time, um, except for Chernobyl, that we have ever reached a level seven on the international nuclear event scale. So this was uh, one of two of the biggest, nastiest nuclear accidents where there was a massive uh, release of radiation into the environment. And so, uh, while this was happening, uh, workers went into one of the damaged reactors and they needed to vent hydrogen. When they went in there, they came across uh, like th- this wall of radiation that was nasty stuff and they had to leave really fast. So they could not manually vent this hydrogen, which led to later on massive explosions, which further damaged the reactor and and dumped more radioactive materials into an already contaminated environment. So obviously, the Japanese emergency teams and the people that were working on this, they realized that if they just had radiation-resistant robots, they could have prevented uh, uh, this crisis uh, from getting worse as it was steadily getting. And ironically, they had anticipated this uh, ten, like, like 10 years previously, and they created these working prototypes. Uh, but after having them for just a brief period of time, 
uh, they mothballed them and they even gave away some of their, some of the, those prototypes because they were deemed unnecessary, that there would not be a scenario where people wouldn't just be able to do uh, much better than the robots could. And I just thought that's just so ironic that, uh, it's like ro- every disaster movie ever. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, of course. Basically. Right. When would we not need a robot to do something dangerous, right? Think about it. Come on. But, uh, but it's especially ironic though, because, you know, Japan is like Robotopia. I mean, it's, it's, they, that is the robot capital of, of the planet. And they were like, oh crap. I wish we had these types of robots. They did not have them, but not just them. Nobody. <laughs> I thought it was, I thought Zero One was a robot capital of the world. Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah. Nice, Steve. Nice. Oh God, I love that damn show. And for the audience, that's the Matrix, the Animatrix. Oh yeah. If you want to know what we're talking about, watch the Animatrix. It's, it's magical. It's so beautiful. <laughs> um, okay. So not, but not only Japan, there was not a robot on the planet that, that could have helped them significantly. The technology was just not there. They, I think the United States sent some robots over, but all they really could do was take pictures of the interior. They really couldn't do squat inside there right. and, and you know i mean not only are we talking radiation you know we're talking damage and debris and all sorts of stuff uh so this yeah no r2 no r2d2 to <laughs> yeah save the day, right is what you're saying so, so we have um, to send a terminator back from the future to do it anything would have been better because we had squat <laughs> so this really was a wake-up call for the robotics <laughs> industry and uh lots of governments especially japan then of course realized yeah we really need autonomous robots that can aid not just in disasters like fukushima but and any in number of types of disasters you could think of you know from earthquakes to you know tornadoes whatever tons of them so then this is kind of where where DARPA enters the picture this is when they decided to begin their DARPA robotics challenge and it was designed to spur innovation and get roboticists collaborating and it's I guess it seems like it was the perfect time within the industry for this type of intervention to happen because uh, Dr. Gil Pratt who's the program manager of the DRC he said what we what we do is we wait for technology to be almost ready for something big to happen, and then we add a focused effort to catalyze the something. It doesn't mean that we take it all the way into a system that's deployed or to the marketplace. We rely on the commercial sector to do that, but we provide the impetus, the extra push the technology needs to do that. And that's a, that's a fantastic idea. I, I really commend them for, for, for doing this. And this is a great, this is one of the great things that the DRC challenge did. So what, the challenge itself, Jay, is uh, it um, it happened over three years, those three different stages. The very first stage was completely virtual. It took place entirely within uh, within a computer, and uh, the teams that the, the dozens of teams that that entered, um, the ones that were the best, were then kind of sent into the next stage, the following year, uh, or I think it might have been uh, twelve, yeah, about a year later, I, I guess. Uh, this was the hardware stage, the first hardware stage, uh, competition that they did. And then this past, uh, this past one was the third and final round. So the best of the best, uh, 24 international teams, which were the best of all the teams that have, that have, uh, done this, uh, were in this latest competition, this two day competition. And instead of having, uh, separate 30 minute tasks, what they did was they have, you have one hour to complete eight tasks, one after the other in uh, the simulation of a disaster at an industrial plant. And the tasks that they had to do were they had to drive a car, they had to get out of the car, open a door and pass through, close a valve, cut a hole in the wall with a drill. That's a good one. 
Then they had to either climb over debris or clear a path. So they had to deal with an uneven surface, climb a flight of stairs, and then they would give them a surprise task. Uh, that they did not, that they did not announce. And they, the surprise tasks turned out to be, uh, flipping a switch, uh, you know, which sounds easy, but if you didn't anticipate that, it could have been difficult. And the other one was to take a, a plug in an outlet and unplug it and then plug it into another outlet. Uh, so I call this the, uh, octathlon. So when this was done, only three robots were able to complete all eight tasks. None of the other uh, robots uh, could finish all of them. Some got six, some got seven, but only three got eight. And of those three, uh, the uh, the the uh, the Hubo robot of Team Cased of the Republic of Korea finished in 44 minutes, so they got the two million dollar top prize. And then Running Man of Team IHMC Robotics of Pensacola, Florida, they did it in 50 minutes. They got a million, and a uh, half million went to the Chimp Team of the Tartan Rescue of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And they did it in 55 minutes. Now, there's a few interesting things about the robots themselves. A lot of them, if you looked at them, you'd say, what the hell? That looks like the same damn robot. Actually, uh, a lot of the robots were actually donated. So a lot of the teams did not have to create them from scratch if they did not want to. So, for example, we... Wait, there are people that donate robots? Boston Dynamic. Ever hear of Boston Dynamic? Yeah, but like, can they, they donate me a robot? Like, can I no. get one of these robots? No, come on, seriously. <laughs> they, they absolutely would not donate one to you unless you maybe gave them a, a multi-million dollar donation. But Boston Dynamic, a- <laughs> Boston Dynamic <laughs> is, is one of the okay. premier uh, robotics companies on the planet. They, they've created amazing contraptions from the, the big dog series. You know, the, that amazing, like, it looks like a headless quadruped. That is amazingly adaptive. It it could it could walk around on slippery ice and recover its balance it, in a very animal like way. Yeah, and speaking of it, speaking of that, Bob, it it did seem amazing that all of a lot of the robots were bipeds. I mean, why? It seems like for this kind of task, you would want a quadruped like Big Dog, but with attachments to manipulate stuff. But why wouldn't your 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 platform be quadrupedal? Why would well, you have a I'll, bipod? I'll, I'll tell you why, Steve, because they they've they've thought about this, of course, these people that that live and breathe this stuff. They thought about it. And uh their the estimation of the people that I've read about said that there is no clear winner on whether to go with humanoid or non humanoid because there's there's pros and cons to both. So the bottom line for humanoids is that they are very fast, but they're not stable for some of the tasks. Um, but, but then conversely. No, they fall over a lot. Oh my God. Go on, go to YouTube and type whatever DRC falling robot and you will see robot after robot after robot falling down in the most humorous ways. Um, it's, it's quite hilarious. But conversely, the non-humanoids, they were more stable, but they had problems in areas that were meant for humans. I mean, they're working in an area designed for people. So yeah. if you're not people shaped, doorways, you, you, you yeah. could have a problem. So it's kind of a toss up, Steve. And yeah. the, the interesting thing is that, uh, the Hoopo robot, I think, had an inspired idea. What they did was they put knees on the, I mean, sorry, they put wheels on the knees of their robot. So they could, all it has to do was kneel on the ground, Just drop to its drop knees, to its knees and, and then, and then you're very stable, um, on with, with wheels. Uh, but if you need to walk up a flight of stairs or over debris, then it just stands right up. And, uh, and that some people think that was one of the key reasons why it did so well. Yeah. I was talking about Boston dynamic. They contributed seven robots to seven teams 
And the Koreans actually uh, uh, had two of the Hubo robots. But, I mean, you just get like a, a robot, a blank robot. Well, you – not totally blank, but it's up to you to come up with the software and the control systems. And that's the crux of the competition. It was, you know, not as much of a hardware competition as you might think, but more of a software and control systems competition. So uh, congratulations to, to Hubo. Uh, they, they kicked ass. So now, sadly, the DRC is over for, as far as I can tell. That's it. The, the competition has, yes, it's run its course. This was the, this was the plan. You know, three major competitions. Uh, they, they have a winner and, uh, and hopefully now, well, the idea is that they can take the, what they've learned and then hopefully cr- turn it into something that, that can, you know, enter the market, be commercial, you know, enter these nuclear reactors. And, uh, it's a final impetus. That they need to really find, you know, hone, uh, what they've learned into a real working robot. And maybe there'll be some other prizes from other, from other companies, but this specific challenge is over. All right, Jay, it's who's that noisy time? All right. Also last week I played you a, a sound file. I, that, that was what I call the short version. I'm going to play you the longer version now. Um, for those of you who did not figure out whose voice it was talking about a UFO last week. Over here, up there, I saw a UFO, and it went down the river, turned right at the United Nations, <laughs> turned left, and then down the river. It wasn't a helicopter, and it wasn't a balloon, and it was so near. Then it looked what, sort of uh, round, just, white, just innocent, like, and silent. Uh, silent, and it looked dark, like black or gray in the middle, and had white lights, just looked like light bulbs, you know? Just going off, on, off, on, off, on, blink, 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 blink. Around the bottom, and on top was a red light. So who was that? So let's see. It's somebody with a Liverpool accent living in New York City. <laughs> yeah, let's see. Hmm. United Nations. Um, What's this on thing August, called, love? August 23rd, 1974. <laughs> there was a couple of words that – that was John Lennon, if you hadn't figured it out. Yeah. Uh, there was a couple of words that were so Beatle-like in that recording <laughs> yeah. I just played. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yes. The light bulbs, you know, like it's like, oh my god, you were there was a UFO only- in the sky with diamonds. <laughs> yeah, there's, only, there's only four people in the world that talk like that, and he's one of them. So uh, John yeah. Lennon um, said that he walked out onto the balcony of his New York apartment, and he said he witnessed a UFO, flying saucer, hovering closely uh, near his window. I don't know. There's quite a bit of stuff on the internet about this. Quite a bit of uh, misinformation. At, at best, but there's a lot of, a lot of stuff about this incident. Uh, he truly believes that he saw a UFO. He talked quite a bit about it. And then a lot of people believed him and, you know, tried to prove it and all that nonsense. But very interesting. Um, I got, I got actually, um, so many responses to this with people that knew who it was. I'm just going to congratulate everybody. Thank you very much. You have all okay. won. That was a little easy. Um, so I decided to try something. You know, I don't know. I don't know how hard this one is. It's it's odd. I'll tell, I'll tell you that, and it's also going to be strangely familiar. But there's there's more detail to it. All right, you get the idea. It was and the Hal 8000. Upon the seat. 8000. <laughs> yeah, now this, this is probably something that you could 
most likely easy, easily Google, but I challenge you to just challenge. guess, guess what it is without Googling. Asia, do you have a guess? I have no guess whatsoever on that one. <laughs> You're familiar with the song though. No, I'm not. That's, that's all news to me, that oh. whole, whole thing. So I'm just, I have no idea. Did it, that's awesome. <laughs> did you that's get the how 8000 reference? Yes, very nice. No, Asia, did you get that reference? Oh. Have you ever watched 2001 A Space Odyssey? No. Watch it. It's my favorite movie. Steve, Steve said, Oh my God, watch it. What he was saying on the inside was, inside. Oh my God, <laughs> How watch could this it? person have never seen this movie? What the hell? Steve, you are such a cool cucumber. I know you so well. I know exactly what you were saying on your inside voice. <laughs> so write in, write in to me at uh, WTN at the skeptics guide dot org with your guesses. So I was poking around the internet recently. And I came across something which I had I had heard about before, but it's uh, I decided to do a deep dive on it and really wrap my head around it. And Bob, you you already you were a step ahead of me in this one. This is in your wheelhouse. So I was looking at uh, this stupid clickbait, which is like huh. whatever ten pictures you won't believe or something. And I hate those. I know, but I can't resist them sometimes. <laughs> but there Some was one them. that there was one that caught my eye. Like, all right, I want to see what this is, and. Uh, this is the phenomenon known as memento mori. Bob, I know you've heard about this before. I, I sure have, yeah. Fascinating uh, topic. Yeah. In Victorian times, so basically like 1850 to 1900, uh, it was common practice, or not uncommon at least, for families uh, when a loved one died that they would have a professional photographer take a picture of the recently deceased. Uh, and that that... that Photograph is known as a memento mori or a memento of death. There were several reasons for this. This seems like to us to modernize. If you look at some of these pictures, you're like, oh my, why would anybody want that? You know, as the way to remember their loved one. Uh, but, uh, it was, it was already a common practice to have like a painting drawn of a recently deceased loved one. And so when photography started to become affordable to the average person, it was a simple transition to to then take a photograph of them rather than paint a portrait of them. What this and many websites do, if you look up Memento Mori or pictures of dead people or whatever, they show a number of pictures. A lot of them, however, are not actually pictures of dead people. Um, so there's a lot of fake Memento Mori on the Internet photos that are being presented as if they are pictures of the right. dead, but they're not. So there and was with good reason, because they're 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 worth a lot more money than just an, an old any old picture. Yeah, that's right. So one of the reasons may be that sellers of Victorian daguerreotypes or these old photographs, collectors will pay a lot more for a memento mori than for just a picture of a of a person. And so um often they will they'll, you know, stretch the truth just to, to goose up the price of their picture. This is, I don't know how much of, of this has caused the mythology around this, but it's, it's definitely contributed to it. Uh, but before we get to that, a little bit more background on the memento mori. So the other reason why it did not seem that unusual to take a picture of a dead relative is because the, you know how long it took Asia, tell, give me a guess. How long did it take at the very beginning of popular photography? You hire a photographer, 
how long did he have to expose the picture? So how long did you have to like pose for it? How long yeah. were you standing there with the a exposure, goofy smile? Yeah, exposure time was how long? Oh, I'm going to guess maybe 10. No, I'm, you know, that's probably wrong. Maybe a minute. Up to 30 minutes. Wow. Yeah, match up to 30 minutes. So you, Jeez. you couldn't take a picture of a child, you know, that uh, they're never going to sit still for 30 minutes. As the technology progressed and, you know, based upon like how good the photographer was in the camera, the situation, you know, it got down to 10 minutes maybe or five minutes, but still multiple minutes. But at its worst, I, you know, I've read up to 30 minutes. So that's partly why uh, people are not smiling in those old time photographs because you can't <laughs> smile for 30 minutes. Uh, they had to remain perfectly still, which means that really a blank expression on their face was their only option. Well, Steve, if that's the case, that it was that long, I didn't know it was quite that long, but why wouldn't it be more blurred? Because there would be inevitable fidgeting and movement that I think would would blur the picture. Yeah, I think, well, there probably are a lot of blurred pictures out there, but I mean, they, oh, yeah. they just had to be really, really still. That's why they didn't smile, I guess, huh? Yeah, that's why they weren't smiling. They also had something called a photographer's stand. So if you were standing in the picture, they would put a, a literally like a metal frame stand behind you to hold you up so that, yeah. so that you could stand perfectly still for 30 minutes. I've also seen contraptions where they sort of, uh, vice your head into a certain position. Yeah. It's like ring and it really keeps your head from doing any sort of movement. And sometimes you see people in what look like awkward poses. Because, well, they were propping, propping themselves up in a way so they could hold that position for so long. Yeah. And that's, and that's what ties into the, the photographs of dead, of dead people. Because yes. people would see, would see those support structures to keep people steady and they think, Oh, look, they're propping up a dead body. Like, no, they're not propping up a dead body. They're keeping a living person, you know, somewhat stable and comfortable. So they, they, they don't move. Yeah. So people knew that memento, memento mori existed as a phenomenon. There are pictures of Victorian dead people. And then they saw these these artifacts like expressionless face, weird position, being propped up. And they go, oh, that must have been because that was a dead person. But that's not true. It was just an artifact of the photography. One of the things, one of the features, um, and the part, the photograph that really got me interested in this was that there's a picture of yes. two sisters, one standing, one sitting. And this is, if you look up like – Memento Mori on the internet, this picture is very likely to be in the mix. Everyone is presenting this as a picture where one of the two girls is dead, but it's, I, I really don't believe that that's true. I think they're both alive. And what they're saying is that the, the girl who is standing, it, you know that she's dead because her arms are dusky and that's because the blood is collecting in her arms. It's like, that, well, it's called liver mortis. Liver mortis. But it could also be that she was freaking standing there for 30 minutes in her arms in a dependent position, or it could just be nothing. It could just be whatever, just the lighting of the photograph or whatever. Right. But the, the quote unquote dark hands is used as evident, alleged evidence that the person, the subject is dead, but it's just not true. Now, if you look at genuine memento mori, uh, in the vast majority of photographs, the person who is dead is obviously dead. There's no question that you are looking at a dead person. They have X's for eyes and their tongues are hanging out. Well, no. so one of the things that they sometimes did was paint eyes on the closed eyelids. 
Yeah, that'll There's do it. one picture. It's very creepy. It's like of a fu- it's a five year old boy sitting up in a chair oh. with eyes painted on his lids. What the hell? And, really? And and Bizarre. he he is dead in that picture. That is a picture of a dead boy, and it's obvious. It's just obvious. You could just tell that that's a dead person when you look at it. There is another picture of like a, a 13 or 14 year old girl laying in the arms of her mother. And again, she's limp and it's just clear that that's a dead body. You know, that that's not a living person. Uh, there are all the pictures are very sad when you think about what's happening in that picture. They're incredibly sad. There's one picture of a woman who is not in good shape. Bob, I showed this one to you, right? Oh boy. Yes. She, Young probably had a traumatic death, and it's like, wow, really? I mean, that you know, I, 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 it's hard to get myself in the mind of the of the husband or whoever who was like, yes, I want a picture of my mangled wife's corpse as a memento. Uh, but uh, but there it is. The the reasoning makes a little sense if you think about it, because that that you know there were no u- ubiquitous uh, smartphones where you, you could take a picture yeah. of anything and everything. I mean, it was still. Even years after the camera was invented, it was still a very expensive proposition and a very rare occurrence. So if you had a, a young child die, as tragic as that was, you could also, that also means that you probably never had a photograph of them taken. So this was right. like your last chance to do no, it. Exactly. Was, exactly. Yeah. Again, it's a, it's an act of desperation. It's like your one opportunity to get a picture of them and they'll be still for the, you know, for the picture. The, as the tradition evolved, um, it became, common for the the deceased subject in the photo to be in their coffin so then again it's a pretty damn obvious that who's dead because they're in their coffin you know there was there was no attempt made so the bottom line is there was for the vast majority of photographs there was no attempt made to conceal the fact that the person was dead and in fact later on they were almost always like in a coffin surrounded by flowers and you know it, it was obvious there were there are really just a few photographs uh, that are out there where the per- the dead person was propped up in a lifelike position, you know, where they, there was some attempt made to make them look as if they were lifelike, um, but they, but never successfully, you know, never to the point where it's going to fool you. Um, so if you do see a picture that is labeled as a memento mori or that there's, you know, a Victorian picture of a, of a dead person and it doesn't look that way, it's probably not real. Yeah, be skeptical. Yeah, and and Steve, uh, did, did you say the definition of, the, of of memento mori and what it actually means? Uh, it, it uh, did I miss that? It, it it's Latin. It means remember that you ha- that you have to die. So, and it was you know kind of apart from the the pictures that we're talking about. It was kind of it was an attitude of yeah. like, of, of people you know of people uh, needing to reflect on death. And of course, death back back then was much more prevalent than it is today. I mean, sure, you can turn on the TV and see all sorts of crazy stuff, but actual real death is just not in our in our faces as much as it was. And and people, you know, kind of had the attitude that you that you do need to reflect on, you know, how temporary life on the on the earth is and all the earthly pleasures are and and just to reflect on death. And that's something that that we just don't do. Yeah, so that's another uh, factor that I read about that. Like in uh, us as you know, in the 21st century, trying to understand this Victorian practice, like they were much more intimate with the concept of death, and they embraced it, and they were they weren't as afraid of it as we are, and so it was not such a big deal to them, you know, to you know be taking a picture of their recent with, in fact, their recently de- deceased child, for example. 
All right, guys, we're going to take a break from our show to talk about an oldie but a goodie, Squarespace.com. All right, so it's the middle of the night. You can't sleep. You sit up. You're like, I'm going to start a blog. All right, yeah. I want to mm-hmm. start an online business. You don't know how to code. You barely can type. What are you going to do? Like, where, how <laughs> are you going to make a website? Spend Seriously. a lot of money hiring someone, probably. It's going to cost me an arm and a leg. Right, or you could go, oh, I don't know, squarespace.com and go start a website and do it like really easy, really fast. And it looks awesome, right? Like, check it out. Squarespace has all of these responsive templates that basically change their shape and size to fit whatever the person is looking at your website on, you know, cell phone, tablet, their PC or whatever. You you just pick one template, fill in all the data that you want, and then everything else is done by them. It is seriously very easy, very fast. And if you sign up right now, you get a free domain name. Cool. I hear they have security tools and a uh, very stable platform. So you could start this at just $8 a month. So start your free trial site today with no credit card at all required at squarespace.com. So when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code SGU to get 10% off your first purchase. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Asia, just for you, I have a special theme this week. The theme is new species. So these are new species that have been described in the last year, and there are four of them. Oh, boy. So one of these species is fake. The other three are real. All right, here we go. Item number one, Hipsugo dolicondon, or the long-toothed pipistrelle, is a bat with impressive canines that it uses in colonies to kill through exsanguination much larger animals as large as an ox. Item number two, Cyrtodactylus valifongi, is a bent-toed gecko whose <laughs> claim to fame is being the 10,000th reptile in the reptile database. Number three, Ampulex dementor is a new species of wasp yeah. inspired by uh, the dementors of Harry Potter that turns its prey into zombies before consuming them. And item number four, three new species of princess moths have were named in the genus Cyrandornia, Easily identifiable as new species because their genitalia sport graspers, spines, tufts, and teeth that create a unique lock and key between the male and female. Jay, go first. All right. So this first one about the long tooth bat. So he's basically yes. a dog bat. So if you call this bat and you say, <laughs> come here, the, the bat will come to you. Um, <laughs> now, I don't believe that this bat is as large as an ox, Steve. I think that's kind of crazy. What? Whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what he's that's, saying. That's not what I'm saying, but well, it's okay. Oh. <laughs> I'm just kidding. A bat yeah, is I'm just kidding. No. All right, so oh, the, the, the claim saying. here is that the bat, <laughs> it kills by exsanguination, ex- which I think, what is that, draining the blood? Yes. Hey. But how could a bat drain the blood of other animals, like a large animal? Does it, like, re- you know, make a horrible wound and then it bleeds out? I mean, I don't know. I, I believe... That this one is science, except for I'm not so sure that that second sentence in there is is real, or that that second part is real. So I, I'll have to put that one on a maybe list. 
the uh, Cerotodolactus villapunhongi. This is the bent-toed gecko. I this is weird, okay. And yet again, like I believe in the bent-toed bent-toed gecko, but I'm not so sure it's the ten thousandth reptile. Oh my God, the Amputelex dementor. All right, this one's cool. Yeah, and I, I absolutely believe that scientists would would name something, you know, new insect after you know something cool that they like in pop culture. And you know, I love the dementors. That's I would do it. Uh, I already uh-huh. believe that zombies exist in the natural world. <laughs> so there you go. I think three is definitely science. And this last one here, these three new species of princess moths were named something strange, and they have these crazy things and all sorts of stuff and teeth where it's not supposed to be and i absolutely believe that one is science because you know nature is insane that item is insane so the three and four absolutely going back to one and two okay um i think number one is the fake i don't think that the the long-toothed bat actually exsanguinates large animals okay evan uh, bat with impressive canines uses that it uses in colonies to kill through Exsanguination and larger animals. Yeah, that's that's a tough one to uh, take. Uh, that's you're right. That's a lot of blood. Um, bats, you know, I, they eat smaller things. They eat you know, insects and things. I, I don't know that bats at all prey on uh, much larger things. I mean, it'd be, that'd be really out of the ordinary. Uh, bent-toed gecko. Um, 10,000th reptile in the database. I mean, sure. I mean, you know, why not? There's nothing wrong there. Uh, I think you're trying to get us on this Ampulex Dementor, turning its prey into zombies before consuming them. We have seen that before in the insect world. Ants, I believe it was, uh, one example. So I think that's right. The last one about the moths and these awful genitalia teachers teeth i mean what really i know right the hell, what, what the hell's what, going what on evolu- what kind of evolutionary advantage is that I, well it's the lock and key i mean i mean talk about a lock so that's that's horrifically correct jay i think you hit it and i think the bat is the fiction okay bob um i'm gonna start with four the moths yeah i mean i could see the advantage of uh of the lock and key he's like you you're not going anywhere that yeah, that makes sense. I've seen far crueler and weirder things, so I could I could totally buy that. The Dementor uh, wasp, sure, that's just too awesome not to be true. It better be true. I'll be very disappointed if it's not. And uh, yeah, it makes sense that they would uh, that they would in- incapacitate a creature before consuming them. So there's no not much struggling. Um, so sure, I could buy that. Uh, the bent-toed gecko. My only problem with that is that a gecko having a bent toe. Uh, sounds a little weird. I mean, because the the geckos don't they uh, don't they rely on the Van der Waals force to climb on anything? And if you've got a bent toe, I think that would inhibit uh, climbing around. Bob, on, I've on had flat a bent toe box. Does that count? <laughs> it's not the only thing that's bent, Jay. And let's see, <laughs> the first one, um, the the bat one. I'm just so not buying that. Just so not buying that at all. Come on, bats eat either like insects or fruit. Or a little bits of blood. They're not going to kill large animals. I mean, so what? So first of all, a, a vampire bat has like an anesthetic in its saliva, so the uh, the the animal doesn't even know that it's being sucked on. Uh, so, but this one's got big enough teeth where it's gonna where it's going to exsanguinate something as big as of an, of an ox. And then what? Then what? Is it going to 
drink to what advantage? It's not going to eat the flesh, which is carnivorous bat. That's not going to happen. And, and, and you've got colonies of these bats killing big animals and, uh, and the big teeth. I mean, how, I don't know how we could miss that. That, that would have been discovered a long time ago. That's so impressive. And maybe they do have, have bigger, have big canines, I guess. But even that doesn't make a lot of sense. It's just wrong on so many levels. It, it, that's got to be the fiction. And Asia. So Bob, Jay, and Evan are unanimous. They don't believe in my carnivorous bat. Yeah, and last time I, I went with the crowd, they were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that That's right. Hey, what that's the a hell? very good point. <laughs> um, the bat thing's got, I don't know, because, I mean, some of them eat insects, but then, you know... Some of them also feed on blood, from what I understand as well, but I'm just not sure if they would go after something necessarily bigger than they are. And as for the gecko, I'm kind of at loss on that one, but with the wasp, that's a total, that makes complete sense to me. They're vicious. That, that kind of goes with, <laughs> with their MO. The princess moths, I'm, I'm not actually very familiar with, with insects and moths very much, so I'm, it sounds fairly reasonable what uh, is being suggested. The bat, though. The bat. You guys are probably all wrong. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that wouldn't be surprised. I, I'm going to go with that's wrong, I guess. That seems kind of strange, but then, I guess... Go with the crowd. Go with the crowd. Let's see what they say. <laughs> yeah. All right. We've done this we before. This before? Okay, well, let's take these in reverse order. Of course. Three new species of princess moths were named in the genus Cyrindornia, easily identifiable as new species because their genitalia sport graspers, spines, tufts, and teeth that create a unique lock and key between the male and female. You all think that one is science because insects have crazy genitals. That one is science. Yeah, baby. Yes, because as we learned from Bug Girl, insects have crazy sex. And... But not good crazy, uh, not good crazy. No, really, really oh. bad crazy. Um, yeah, the princess moths, very tiny, like five millimeter, millimeters long, or wings. It, very pretty, very colorful. Um, the pictures are really gorgeous. Uh, but they have this, you know, wacky genitalia. And it, they, so the thinking is that this, this genus and other related genera of these uh, little moths that they have, and moths in general, by the way, have these crazy genitalia that work like a lock and key, you know, with the male playing the role of key and the, the female lock. And that the male and the female of the same species, even though they may be hard to tell apart in other ways, like coloring and size may be very similar, they have absolutely unique signature lock and key genitalia. Absolutely and, unique? Yeah, so that <laughs> species is the only one that has the, that particular shape. And so they could absolutely identify it as a member of its species based upon the formation of its genitalia because and the thinking is that this is meant to prevent interbreeding between species oh, right so that yeah the, a male of one species can only mate with a female of the same species and that even closely related species in the same genus it just won't fit so that one is cool science look at the pictures of them I'll, I'll give you the link with all the pictures you'll see how beautiful they are uh, let's go to number three. Ampulex dementor is a new species of wasp inspired by the dementors of Harry Potter that turns its prey into zombies before consuming them. You guys think this one is too cool not to be science. And this one is yes. science. 
All right. Yes, the yeah. mentors. Zombies, huh? What kind of zombies? Well, faster, it, faster, slow. Unmoving. <laughs> <laughs> so the wasps look creepy. They mm. look like dementors. It's not. Out. Yeah, they really. They're they're very creepy looking. They're uh, black and orange, and they they're long and lanky, and uh, they just you know, they're wasps, but they you know they do look a little bit creepy even for wasps. And uh, they eat cockroaches. Yeah. Uh, yep. They uh, inject them with venom that paralyzes them and turns them into quote unquote zombies. And they take them back mm-hmm. to their lair and slowly devour them. Is it an evil lair? Uh, if you if you like, what designates a lair? By the way, does it have to be subterranean? I don't think so. It's just any safe place that you do your stuff. The back cave is a lair. You know, I I, I want a lair. I yeah. I learned that word playing Dungeons and Dragons. Sure. By the way, sure, sure. All right, so so far so good. Let me show you a picture. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Wow, what are you doing? A, pic- um, a, a picture of the mind of the long toothed pipistrel. Oh. oh, oh, yeah, there you are. Steve, th- Steve, that reminds me of a vampire bat, dude. That reminds me of a gremlin from Gremlins. I was picturing a that's... saber, saber tooth bat. Look at no, those that's fangs. My, that's my ex mother in law. Yeah, but a, va- a vampire bat has fangs like, just like that. Look at the fangs. And now you're insulting the bat. You're insulting the bat, Jay. All right, what happened, Steve? What that's awesome. That's awesome. I love that. So to read it again, the Hipsugo Dolacondon. Or the long-toothed pipistrelle is a bat with impressive canines that it uses in colonies to kill through exsanguination much larger animals as large as an ox. So you guys all picked up the in-colonies bit, right? It's not like one bat taking down an ox. This is like 50 to 100 bats uh, using those canines to cause enough wounds that it just – it's bleeding from 100 wounds and eventually the animal like just per- – Piranha-free yeah, feeding yeah, frenzy. You totally Jedi mind trick that – that word out of my mind. That's bullshit. You didn't see the in colonies. It's there. Evan said it. Evan was very specific in reading it. You thought one bat was taking down an ox, Jay? I don't like you. <laughs> I, even, I still, I still don't. Wow. But this one is still the fiction. Everyone's happy. Yay, Bob rules. So look at those nasty, you know, look at those that's nasty awesome. canines. That's a, that's yeah, an that, ugly looking bat. I mean, that's pretty. That bat nasty. looks like it, that ugly. mouth it, looks very painful, it's man. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> Bob, in fact, you're getting one of these for, for Halloween. They think that this bat eats hard shelled insects and that's what its canines are for. Crunchy. So it is uh, yes. probably an insect eater. Uh, but they're not 100% sure because they just, well, they just discovered it. Just discovered it. Yeah. Yep. I-, I hope not in the northeastern United States. No, these things are all uh, in Asia. Oh, thank goodness. I mean, poor Asians. <laughs> <laughs> Which means that Cetodactylus villafungi is the bentoed gecko whose claim to fame is being the 10,000th reptile. And the reptile database is science. There are lots of bent toed geckos. Really? 192 species now. Whoa. Uh, more oh. than any other gecko. Wow. Huh. Or 197. No, no more other. Than any other lizard, you mean? No, no, no. More than any. Well, there's more species in the, in this genus of bent. There's more bent toed geckos, 197. Than any other. Than in any geckos. other genus of gecko. Okay. The next biggest genus of geckos only has 15 species in it. But this is the 10,000th reptile to be uh, in the reptile database. 
So it dinged over from 9,999 to 10,000. Ding. This was, what did it win? <laughs> it's pretty. It looks like a... Uh, Zebra skinned. It's like black with white stripes. It's a pretty little bugger. So good science or fiction, Steve. Yeah. Uh, some of the other animals that were discovered recently are interesting as well. Um, there's an orchid that's so rare, they don't want to name it because they don't want people to go collect it because they think it'll drive it into extinction. There is a stick, a walking stick. You got to see a picture of this guy. The second longest insect in the world. That's the second longest insect yes. I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh there's a picture of a guy holding it up it's like wider than his shoulders you know it's like whoa 54 centimeters across very very long wow like, and one more crocodile newt from myanmar who is probably going to be instantly on the endangered species list they were talking about the fact that the problem is when you discover a new species it's not on any endangered lists yet you know oh how ironic because um, the you know the, the laws don't work that way, uh, and so they sometimes they go like immediately into the pet trade. And in fact, this species was uh, some two of the specimens were taken from the pet trade. That's how they partly how they discovered it, and also it goes into the traditional Chinese medicine trade. Uh, so uh, yeah, so the, all, immediately we discover this rare species that's that's endangered, and we start selling it for medicine and pets. For fake medicine, but they are cute. Uh, but they may they may go extinct quickly for those reasons. All right. Well, Asia, did you did a good job? Thank you. So you're one. In, you're, does that make mean you're one in two for science or fiction? I, I've gotten one out of two, or sorry, one out of three. One out of three. One. Yeah, one and two. That's pretty good. Not bad. Not bad. I think that's that's as average. good as uh, Ev, Ed Bob is doing this season. I think. Oh boy. But up. <laughs> <laughs> Evan, hit us with the quote of the week. Here we go. Be not astonished at new ideas, for it is well known to you that a thing does not therefore cease to be true because it is not accepted by many. Who can it be? Who could it be? Perhaps the Dutch philosopher Baruch Spinoza? That's my, Very that nice. was my guess. Very nice. Yeah. Not exactly what Actually. I would call pithy, but <laughs> nice nonetheless. Nice nonetheless. A little yes. wordy, Baruch. I- uh, but you know, for him, actually, uh, not so. Yeah. Much. <laughs> he was he was quite the quite the writer, and amazingly, he was able to kind of encapsulate this in just one sentence. Um, and for those of you who don't know, he was a uh, philosopher. He laid the groundwork for 18th century Enlightenment and modern uh, biblical criticism, uh, including modern conceptions of the self and arguably the universe. He came to be considered one of the great rationalists of 17th century philosophy. He uh, he opposed Descartes' uh, mind-body dualism. Good for him, Steve. Yeah, and uh, he earned some recognition as one of Western philosophy's most important thinkers. And did you know that, although he's a philosopher by night, by day he was a lens grinder, and he ground some very good lenses. Uh, the quality of his lenses were very much praised by Christian Huygens. Mm-hmm. Christian um, Huygens. <laughs> Christian Huygens, the astronomer. Uh, in fact. In fact, um, Constantine Huygens uh, took one of his uh, lenses and made a 42-foot telescope lens from uh, one of his dishes. Uh, This was 10 years after Spinoza had died. So he uh, took his lens and made a really wonderful telescope uh, out of it. Cool. Thank you, Evan. Asia, are you going to the amazing meeting this year? I'm not sure yet, to be honest with you. Oh, Oh, boy. 
Um, I've oh, been on. It's going to be a good one. Yeah, I've been on an interesting how, adventure how where I've kind of gone all over the place. Like I told you before, I've been to Australia twice. I've been to Korea. I went to Indonesia, and then I'm heading to Amsterdam uh, tomorrow at noon. Which is going to be interesting. <laughs> yeah, so, wow. so what's a trip to Vegas? Oh. You know? Exactly. All right. Well, um, yeah. I will see if I can sneak it in. It's been quite the busy okay. year. Well, we'll miss you if you're not there this year. It's July 16th and 19th in the Tropicana, Las Vegas. Uh, obviously, we're going to be there. George Robb, we're going to be honoring James Randi, who is uh, capping off, not ending, but capping off, let's say, his amazing career. Uh, quite the lineup. They are really cramming in a lot of speakers this year. Take a look at the speaker list. Go to amazingmeeting.com. Register. Uh, there's still You can still register Friday night for the SGU dinner. It's always a lot of fun. Uh, we hope to see a lot of our listeners there. Asia, let us know if you're going to be there. Okay. I will, uh, I'll see if I can sneak it in. All righty. And thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you very much, guys. Yeah. Thank you so much. Great talking to you again. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. Ha ha ha.